Hi everyone. In today's episode of Your Double Podcast, we are speaking to Joanne Cloth Zanard. She is the founder, board president of Fast Intervention, a non-profit dedicated to education and training of professionals and survivors of psychological abuse. She has a master's degree in marriage and family, a bachelor degree in health and psychology, and an extensive training in reunification, psychological abuse. child psychology and other aspects related to dysfunctional family processes. Joan is an expert in the fields of parental alienation, psychological abuse, intervention strategies and techniques for moving forward and rebuilding a life after a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events. Joan is also trained GAL, a qualified expert witness and an ADA advocate. Joanne is also the author of Where Did I Go Wrong? How Did I Miss the Signs? and a contributing editor in Broken Family Bonds, Poems and Stories by Victims of Parental Alienation. As usual, all the links and resources we discussed throughout this episode is included in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hi, Joanne. First of all, thank you for doing this interview. While researching about you and your organization, I realized that you have one of the websites with the most intensive and extensive range of resources for those who are suffering from parental alienation and domestic abuse. It's obvious that you are super passionate about this particular topic. So, I would like to start. with asking where did all this passion to help those who are going through parental alienation start what's the inception story of all these things i did working with domestic violence stuff probably for about 30 35 years then i met my husband and at that time i believed that you know women were the only ones who really got abused and then i met my husband and we started dating and his ex-wife his second ex-wife started alienating his children first wife and son When I met him and we started dating, that relationship was a bit off, but I fixed that. And we now have a good relationship with both of them. The second wife with those two children has been the problem. She, as soon as she found out that he was dating me, she started refusing him the children. And at that point, I went online. And we had very limited stuff back in the 90s, very limited information out there. And I, so I was putting in key words and Dr. Richard Gardner came up. And it just so happens I knew him personally. So I was able to ask him questions and he remembered me. I went to school with his kids. He had been my therapist when I was a teenager and a young child on a couple of occasions when I needed it. Um, and he remembered me. That helped me a lot to start to hone in and say, wow, this is not just a small little thing just happening to my husband. This is happening to parents everywhere who are dealing with a, custo- a high conflict custodial int- issue. And I guess that... I- My husband basically hasn't seen his middle two kids more than about six times since 1996 and not at all since 2006. His kids are now 30, going on 31 and 33. I have a biological daughter 
that is not his, but he legally adopted three day, three years after her biological father did die and pass away. I guess looking at your husband's situation and what he was going through made you realize how many others are suffering with the exact same issue, especially seeing how his ex-wife decided to punish him for being with you by choosing to be happy and to move forward by using her kids, her own kids, as a tool for that particular punishment that was given to your husband? Probably. A lot of the work I did when I was much younger put me into positions where I was meeting people who just were there. They wanted to talk. A lot of the time I worked in the bars. Um, and so you meet a lot of people and they tell you their stories. So you begin to, you know, to work on that. Plus, I ended up going to school for psychology as well as my master's magna cum laude in marriage and family therapy. I have, I have so many letters behind my name from trainings and education. So you probably just stick the alphabet there and we'd be fine. From reading your blogs, your websites, and uh, watching the videos of you on YouTube, I do get the feeling that you're someone who's highly empathetic and uniquely talented to help people who are suffering from parental alienation or going through a high-conflict divorce. Do you agree? Yeah, I guess I do have a talent for it. That, that's possible, and that has a lot to do with my training and being compassionate and empathetic, probably. That is a problem for me, probably, also, because when I'm talking to somebody, I can feel their pain. That creates my, me being, you know, more in tune to them. Um, you asked me, you know, well, what do I mean by that once she met me and found out about me, that she started in? Well, he had been separated for three years before he ever met me. And they had decided to use the same attorney to get a divorce. And then she found out about me. And that's when which attorneys, without telling him, never served him with divorce papers, got a divorce without him being present. The judge didn't even ask for a second chance at service to prove that because he hadn't been served. We couldn't prove he hadn't been served because her attorney was very well known. And um, despite our attorney getting the... Um, Marshall to admit that he did not serve my husband. He the Marshall lied on the witness stand and said he had. So my husband ended up with this divorce from his second wife with no custody, but his parental rights intact. The ex-wife told the judge that, see, he didn't even show up for the divorce. He doesn't care. And the judge believed her. It took us 10 years, six court orders, an AMC, a GAL, to figure out what was going on. Now, the AMC got it right away. She was very suspicious of what was going Ryan, on. Sorry to interrupt your flow, but we do have an international listeners base uh, from all over the world. So I think it'll be beneficial if we break down US-specific abbreviations such as AMC and GL and also explain what does a marshal do and so on. It will help our listeners to get a better understanding of the situation and appreciate what you're talking about. We'll start with Marshall. A Marshall is um, an officer, like a state trooper, who, but they're considered, they're a little bit higher. They're a Marshall. They've got a little more power. But what they primarily do when it comes to court orders or motions, they serve them upon the opponent or the other person. This is a legal process in the United States. What is an AMC? Um, they're sometimes called AMCs. They're sometimes called, which is attorney for the minor child, or sometimes they're called a court-appointed attorney for the child. There are many names, but basically, this is different than a guardian ad litem, which is a GAL. A GAL is there to represent what is supposed to be in the best interest of the children. 
An AMC is an attorney who's supposed to represent what the child wants within reason of best interest. Problem we have there is GALs, and especially in my state, are 99% attorneys. Attorneys are not properly trained in psychology to understand the dynamic and the psychological ramifications and to recognize and assess for parental alienation. And an AMC isn't any better because they're also an attorney. So we had both of these on the case. The GAL made six orders for visitation and counseling that the mother repeatedly was in contempt of and violated. Unfortunately, back in those days, prior to 2006, the judges did not really believe in penalizing the other parent. It was kind of like, bad girl, here's another court order. Slap on the wrist again, here's another court order. Slap on the wrist again, here's another court order. Six of these. Never penalizing her, but telling her, you're, you're in, in contempt of the court orders, provide the children for visitation, get them to therapy and stop impeding. She never was held account accountable. So by the time the kids were 16 and 18, we could see the pattern of how it affected their grades, their behaviors. We could see their grades were going up and down, up and down based on whether we were in court, whether she was filing something. So we could see that pattern. And we, we kind of decided when they were about, one was 16 and one was 18, that my husband would, had finally got them into counseling. For every step he took forward, the ex-wife kicked it back 10 paces. Every step forward we made with critical thinking skills, the ex-wife would rip it apart and, and twist it around. So my husband made, made his one last therapy appointment with the kids and said, look, I love you. I will always love you. I always have loved you. I'm not going to force you to go to counseling with me, and I'm not going to force you to go to visitation, but I'm here for you if you need me. Never really heard from them again. The daughter we heard from about three or four months later for, um, what was it, Father's Day? Oh, no, for the summer. She, uh, none of the kids called him for Father's Day. They never called him for his birthday, nothing. Um, and it was in the summer when she wanted new clothes for the summer. And my husband went and took her out and spent a couple of hundred dollars buying her clothes for the summer and never heard from her again, never even heard a thank you. Pretty much like that ever since. And that's how I kind of got involved. I also have a, a sibling whose ex-wife alienated him from his kids. But he's got a much better financial bracket than we did. Um, so he was able to negotiate some other things. But his kids are, are really a mess from it. You briefly mentioned that every step that your husband took to get closer to his kids, his ex-wife pushed it 10 steps behind. Can you break down a bit on what you meant by that and give some specific examples so that people can get a better understanding of the situation? Yeah, I'm going to bring you back. First therapist that we ever agreed to see, that they agreed to see. The kids were six and eight years old at the time. And we got, we, the courts ordered us into therapy. She picked the therapist and she was making the kids go to therapy at like 7 or 7.30 in the morning before school. That is abusive. That was done deliberately to upset the kids so that they were frazzled at school. My husband would tell, the kids would come in saying, well, you know, you did X, Y, Z to us. And my husband would say, no, that's not quite what happened. This is how I remember it or whatever he would say. Then the kids, would, then the session would be over. The kids would get back in the car with their mother. Their mother would interrogate them 
tell them, tell the kids, no, that's not true. Your father just lied. Your father lied. That never happened. Or this is what happened. And send the kids off in such a tizzy, they couldn't even concentrate school that day. That's abuse because they've been made to get up extra early just so they can go to a therapy session with their father. That's the attitude. So that's what, and so the therapy was destined to fail. In fact, it, this therapist was terrible. He didn't understand this. He didn't catch it. It took us six of these type court orders. Um, we would get court orders for counseling. And back in the day, she had Medicaid. And back in that time frame, there were six or eight different types of Medicaid medical insurance that you could sign up with. So that if one insurance, so that if you had to go to a specialist, you could switch from a different insurance if your insurance that you were on didn't take, that specialist didn't take. So every time we got an order for a therapist from the guardian ad litem, she would, change, she would claim that either she couldn't take the kids there because we had already tainted the therapist against, the, against her, or that the therapist, um, she didn't approve of the therapist because of some reason, or she had changed her medical insurance to one that the therapist didn't take. So we'd have to start process all over again, find another therapist, and she'd do it again. So that's why it took us six of these in 10 years to get these kids into therapy, by which point they were 16 and 18. We got one chance to talk to the daughter when she was in college through email. And as soon as her mother found out that the daughter was going to go meet her father for a cup of coffee, she put a kibosh on it. And we got an email from the daughter saying, I don't think this is a good idea anymore. Something else that you mentioned way earlier is that your husband met his children around six times in the last decade or so. What are the times that he actually got to meet them? Can you elaborate a bit further? Give or take. Could have been eight, but it was very little. Very, very little. What, there was one instance when the kids did not have school on a Monday. And they came to visit with us um, from a Saturday to Sunday. And we said to the kids, hey, why don't you ask mom if you can stay over to Monday? You don't have school tomorrow. And the answer resoundingly out of these, this eight and 10-year-old's mouth was, actually it might have been seven and nine-year-old's, was we can't do that. Our mother would never allow it. You know, it's not worth the hassle to ask her. It's too much trouble. Leave it, dad. So right there, they were already, this was at an early time. They already knew where the bread was buttered and what they had to do. Do you think this happened because they were already brainwashed by the ex-wife to despise their father? Well, it wasn't even, it was more than that. They knew they couldn't go against their mother. So let me give you an example. Um, mother was refusing visitation. And her first excuse um, to Judge Miller, and this is decade, several decades ago. Um, he isn't even a judge anymore, I don't think. Um, at any rate, he, well, the first excuse was that the kids couldn't sleep over on a Friday night because she had special TV shows that the, the three of them watched together on a Friday night. The judge, the judge looked at her and said, ma'am, tape record them and you can watch them at another time with your kids. Then the next excuse as to why the kids couldn't stay over Saturday to Sunday was because all of a sudden she was becoming very devout religiously and they had to go to church. So the judge said, if you got to go to church, you take them on Wednesday then. So it was obvious to the courts at that time that she was definitely in contempt and definitely violating and definitely alienating, but they did not know how to handle it. They would not penalize her, which is kind of why I came up with this program called Three Strikes, Year Out, literally how I said it to the legislator in 2014 here in Connecticut. Basically, it's a program that only allows for 12 weeks and three chances for a parent to comply. It's got a lot of bells and whistles. It can be tailored to fit any case. 
And it really helps put the judges, to give the judges their own pattern of behavior to see it right away as to what's going on. And that's kind of how I, because of the, those things, that's how I started getting so involved because I started saying to myself, this can't be right. This can't be healthy for these kids to have this happen. This has got to be psychological abuse to, to do this and make a kid hate his other parent. They're half, they're half of each parent. And this is coming from my training and my background. So I knew it wasn't right. And that's how I started developing the red, the red flag behaviors, the color-coded calendar, and this program, Three Strikes, You're Out. You also mentioned that your husband's children with the ex-wife are pretty grown up. Did your husband receive any invite to big events in their lives, such as weddings or other bigger events like having a baby and so on? I'm asking this as most families will invite everyone, even those they are not close with, to special events such as a wedding. Nope. Not that we know of. The last time, about two, three, maybe about three years ago, I had found my husband's son online. He plays saxophone and found out where he was playing saxophone. And he and I went to go see him. And I told my husband, don't say anything. Don't, he probably won't even remember you. He hasn't seen you in 20 years. I said, don't say anything. Just sit down at the table. And we'll listen to him. And when we're done, you can go up and say hello to him. Well, my dumb husband went outside, go put something in the car. He's waiting for this, his son standing at the front door. And he's waiting for his son to go in so he can walk in. And his son never goes in. So he has to walk past him. And instead of just walking past him, he reaches his hand out and says, hi, Cody. His son, he said his son turned ghost white, went and got his girlfriend and sent his girlfriend over to our table, just out, basically, told us we had to leave. So my husband never even got to hear his son play saxophone. You know, it took a lot for us to find him and search him out. So that should have meant something to him. Whatever reason, his mother, well, I know what the reason, we all know the reason. The mother has got him believing that his father is this horrible, terrible person. Here's another example. We're in court. Uh, actually, let me precede this. The mother tries to give us a dental bill for traces on the child, on the older, on the older of these two children. And my, my husband and I, we knew that our Medicaid or our medical insurance didn't cover for braces. So we purchased an extra dental coverage under my Texaco uh, gas card that gave us 33% off of things like braces. We gave her the card. She refused to use it. And then she tries to submit this bill and make my husband sign that he's going to pay a portion of the braces. Well, we didn't have very much money. We were really destitute. So that became an issue. Then there became the issue of day camp. Kids had gone to the YMCA and we knew that she was on Medicaid and therefore got financial aid to go to YMCA. Well, she gives us a bill for $3,600. And I knew that was not possible because I knew we got financial aid for my daughter to go to the YMCA in a different town. And it only cost $300 per child. So we go into court and she's up on the witness stand. And my attorney produces the dental insurance. And he says, so, um, and the dental bill. He says, so um, you took your son to get dental care. For braces, isn't it true that your um, ex-husband provided you with a dental insurance program that would have taken 33% off of the braces? No, she says. My attorney says, are you sure about that? She goes, yes. He says, I'm here holding the card in my hand that he gave you. Are you sure? She goes, that junk insurance, I would never use that. 
Well, now we bring up the day camp bill. And I had been suspicious. So I contacted the YMCA that her kids went to. And I got a copy of the bill. And I gave it to the attorney. She had only paid $600. She took the bill and put a three in front of the six. So now we're in, that's fraud upon the courts. We're in court and this bill comes up. And my attorney says, so you say there's a $3,600 camp bill. Is this your bill? She goes, yes. He says, well, would it surprise you to know that I'm holding the actual bill in my hand and it's only $600? Judge obviously did not make my husband pay for any of the dental or any of the day camp because she had submitted fraudulent documents and refused to use the insurance we had. Well, the problem with that was that she went home and what did she say to the children? Oh, your father ripped us off again. He got, the judge isn't making him assist in paying for any of your dental and your camp bills. He's a, your father's a scum and whatever the words were that she used, lying to the kids, not telling them the truth, that she caused her own problem with getting paid. So that's the way she rips everything apart. So for every step we take forward, those are examples of ways to twist it around and, and make it look like we're the bad ones. So that's why when they say, oh, it takes two people to tango and to cause a problem. No, it does not. That's one of our myths. It only takes one. The other parent, in fact, this is very important. When these two people meet, it's a very yin and yang relationship. One is a controller and is looking for somebody that's easy to control. And one is the pacemaker, go with the flow, whatever you say, honey, looking for somebody to take the controls. And this was a big problem in my husband's relationship. He actually allowed his second ex-wife to do all the bills and pay all the child support to the first wife. Only she wasn't paying the child support to the first wife. He did not know this. She was throwing the bills in the garbage. And he ended up with a massive child support bill when he finally divorced her. And, it fi- and, he fi- and he finally started getting the bills to his home address. Talking about the myths that do exist about parental alienation, lots of people do assume that parental alienation or PA is just a legal defense used by abusive fathers. What do you think about that? Okay, so I'm going to tell you that's not true. Alienation is genderless, colorless, raceless, religiousless, affects anybody and everybody. There isn't anybody, there is no, I don't think, there may be there's one or two countries that don't have alienation issues in it, but I'm going to tell you that's probably because they believe in shared parenting. There is, there, I can't think of a race, color, creed kind, anything that has never, has not been affected. Many times it's, it may not be in that particular country. The person may be from that country, but is in the United States married to somebody here or in another country where that alienation does exist. So no, the, it, women do not commit parental alienation more than men. And I'm going to do a little historic thing here, and I think this will help. Let's go back to the caveman days. Men and women, there was, you know, they shared responsibilities. They had their chores, their jobs, shared responsibilities of raising the kids. Time goes on, you know. You've got your different, your, your medievals, you know, women are seen as capable of taking care of the kids. The men have more power, though. But this starts to swindle into the 1800s, where it is a, an absolute that women have no rights to vote or to work. So it is assumed that, therefore, since they can't make any money and they can't vote, that they can't possibly be able to provide for their children and keep a roof over their head. So fathers got custody. Then we have the tender years doctrine, where mothers are now able to vote, they're able to work, 
and they're seen as the only ones that can possibly nurture and care for a child. Well, that ended, and they were now seeing the pendulum kind of swinging in between, swinging one way or the other. What's really making the swing and what makes the difference is which parent has more money, which parent has a, an attorney who's better connected, which parent's attorney is connected to the guardian ad litem, or if the parent is better connected to the guardian ad litem or the AMC or whoever the professionals are in the case. That's what makes the difference. It has nothing to do with gender, nothing to do with race, color, kind, creed. Yep, I totally agree with you. With that said, what is your opinion on many females and especially feminists who say that only mothers can get alienated? Worse still, many claim that mothers who alienate, even if they do, they are doing it to protect the children from their father. Parents who use their child as a weapon against the other parent regardless of gender, are committing psychological abuse when it results in severe parental alienation. There are ways to protect children from abuse without causing psychological harm. Research indicates that there is a double standard to accept and justify a mother's parental alienation while sanctioning fathers for the same behavior. So, you know, they say that mothers don't alienate. They're only being protective. Well, that does not bode well with the statistics that show there are a lot of mothers who alienate just as many mothers as there are fathers, that there are so many false allegations. And I'm going to give you a really horrific, hey, I'll give you three horrific stories. One was with a father who was falsely accused of sexually abusing his children and convicted of it based on photographs the mother had taken. Well, about a year into the father's um, jail sentence, the mother is sitting around with a friend and admits to the friend that every time the children came home from their father's home, she would put them in the bathtub and rub their private parts till they were red and raw and then took pictures of them. And that's how she had him convicted. Obviously, the mother was the father was released and the mother was arrested for sexual abuse. Now, then there's the story of Rod McCall. Where and this is an older case where his ex-wife repeatedly kept um, accusing him of abuse and neglect. And in fact, it cost him he was constantly in court. It cost him his teaching job. Um, eventually, he was able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that all the allegations were false. And it was determined that the mother was mentally unstable and that father should have sole custody. And the three attorneys that are there, the mother's attorney, the father's attorney, and the guardian ad litem, the child's attorney, all said to the judge, please, we need to do the custody exchange here at the courthouse. Please have the, the, the in-laws bring the child here to do the exchange. The judge says, no, no, no. Let's let the little mom go home and say her goodbyes. Oh, mom went home and said her goodbyes. Father gets to the house. He sees the in-laws across the street. He starts knocking on the door and all he hears is pop, pop, pop. He shot and killed her son and then killed herself. That's the ultimate of alienation. Another story, and this is very recent, December 2020, John Mast murder. John Mast, same thing, constantly falsely accused of abuse and neglect. Everything is going over for years and years. This is going on. They, it's definitely proven that he is not doing any of these behaviors and the mother is actually involved in coercive control and alienating the children from him. Father wins sole custody. He goes to get his children with his sister and another relative. And he's standing in a parking lot, his back turned to the father-in-law and the father-in-law shoots him in the back and kills him. Something along those lines. I'm not sure which... Whether he turned his back to the father-in-law or was just standing there when the father-in-law shot him. 
This is now a case that's very open and in the news. There'll be a documentary on it. But that's also ultimate alienation. And this is why a proper training and education of the professionals who are working in the family courts is mandatory so that they can assess and recognize true cases of alienation against from false. I have numerous cases where parents who have been falsely accused of alienation. Um, in fact, one of these situations happened to me. I had been falsely accused of neglecting my daughter. I had to hire a pro bono attorney. I'm not going to go to, through all the details, but basically it was proven that I wasn't the problem, that I actually had gone above and beyond everything that I had been asked to do to prove that I was not negligent. I won my case, but unknown to us, DCF had put us on the abuse and neglect registry. They claimed that because they had stated to me that I, that a certain scenario could not, that my husband could not come home, okay, to the house and that I let him back because the judge removed the restraining order, that therefore I was negligent and child welfare endangerment. Well, they never showed, DCF and family relations never showed up in court. So when the judge rescinded the restraining order and said, well, I guess they must not be, I guess they feel there's no abuse. They're not here. We went down to family relations and then went over to Department of Children and Family Services to ask them for therapy and to help us find a special therapist that would work with us to deal with the problems that we are having because of the alienation from the other parent, which was causing triggering things going on for us. They refused us. And that's when a month later, they filed neglect charges against me. And then the judge found that I was the only person that was in neglect was DCF. That I had done everything I had, but I was put into a catch-22, which is what happens to all these parents who are accused of alienating. Not all of them, I should say, but the parents that I've worked with who've been falsely accused of alienating. Oftentimes, a DCF case where DCF says to the parent, you cannot return, the children cannot go back to the other parent. And so the parent has to refuse visitation, but there's a custody order for visitation. So the other parent files a, a, a contempt of court of order on visitation because DCF never filed anything in the port, in the courts as a court order that the children were not to be returned to the other parent. So the judge doesn't listen, doesn't care, and, and accuses the, this parent of being an alienator because they were stuck in a catch-22. If they didn't, if they return the kids to the other parent, Despite the, re the orders from DCF, they would get charged with neglect and welfare, child welfare endangerment. If they didn't return the kids, they were charged with contempt of court orders and accused of alienating. So I have cases like that, too. So this is a big problem with the people that claim alienation doesn't exist and that, you know, women are never alienators. It's always the fathers. I've got women who've been falsely accused of alienating. So I can tell you that, yes, that's true. Some, the women are falsely accused of alienating just as much as fathers are falsely accused of alienating, just as much as both do do alienating. And when, it, until the time that these people who claim parental alienation is not real continue to do what they're doing and reject, while those of us who are experts in parental alienation are saying, but what you're saying is also part of this. They are also, they are, we're getting cases of both. So we know what you're saying is true, that, that mothers are also being falsely accused of alienation until the day that they also agree that mothers do alienate. 
and that fathers are also being alienated, we're, we've got a big problem. You know, where here the people that are experts in parental alienation are more than willing to accept that not all mothers are alienators, that not all fathers are alienators. Both mothers and fathers are also falsely accused of alienation. When are these people that claim parental alienation isn't real going to come back to the table and recognize that we're both right, that there are that there are that alienation exists. And then there are those that try to use false claims of alienation. It's no different than claiming temporary insanity. Why do you think these claims keep coming up? Well, I think because they've all had their children taken from them or knew somebody who had their children taken from them based on alienation. The problem is, you know, there aren't that many of those cases. And even with that said, those parents that are falsely accused of alienating are being alienated if the alienation didn't occur. So they're actually telling us you've been alienated. They've been, they themselves have been alienated because they don't see their kids. So how can you deny that alienation doesn't exist when you've just said you've got parents who are falsely accused of alienation who don't alienate and that mothers don't alienate, yet if you're not seeing your kids, you've been alienated. You can't have it both ways. Either alien, you know, you've admitted that you're being alienated if you're not seeing your kids because of a claim of alienation. Some online articles and reports also say that parental alienation and parental alienation syndrome are completely made up. They are not scientific and they are not real. Oh, we hear that all the time, but that's absolutely not true. In fact, we have, there's 35 years of research and work on it, over a thousand peer review articles. There are constant studies and research that are being done. We have even more recent research on domestic violence for, with men. Um, and that men are abused by women. It's just, just a, there's just some differences. Men just don't report it. In fact, there's statistical data from the emergency rooms that when they collect all the cases of domestic violence that come in and divide it by gender, there's an equal number. That the one thing that is different is that the women will always report it and the men will not because they fear having it turned against them and them being arrested for abuse. Because they automatically assume that men should be able to take care of themselves and shouldn't be, and there's no way that they could possibly be a victim of a woman stabbing them or smacking them in the head with a frying pan or poisoning them or causing psychological abuse. They, you know, that the father, to the point that the father wants to commit suicide. You don't know how many suicides are out there due to this form of psychological abuse, not just with parents, but with children. We all know that suicide rates in men are way more than women. But I think it is because as a man, it's hard to admit that you are getting abuse and many tend to be just quiet about it. Sooner or later, the only escape is to commit suicide. No, they, it's very hard because they're, they've been raised to say that they're, they shouldn't need help. They should be able to support and take, stand on their own two feet. And if a woman comes after them, they just got to stand back and take it. And so they do. And they end up seriously injured so badly that they end up in the emergency rooms. One of the differences between how abuse is perpetrated by men and women is that men are more likely to use physical harm and poison. And women are more likely to use a deadly weapon um, or some kind of a weapon and poison. Both of them use psychological abuse equally because abuse uses psychological. It, that's the premise of it. You know, you're, you're abusing somebody, you're pummeling them, you're psychologically destroying their sense of self-worth and self-esteem. It's called gaslighting. In my recent conversation with Dr. Harmon, 
she mentioned that in a lot of parental alienation cases, it's all about power and control. The alienating parent used their children as a tool to hurt the other parent to demonstrate power and control over their relationship and their children. What do you think about that? Yeah, I actually almost started to touch on this. So basically, um, as I said, you know, this is a yin and yang relationship. And so the one person's looking for the control, somebody to control. The other one's looking for someone to take the control. The day the, ho- the, day the targeted parent, that passive peacemaker, go with the flow parent, stands up and takes back the control. In 99% of my cases, that is the day when all he- hell, hell hits the fan and the alienation begins. Now, to explain the alienator, the alienator is got extremely low sense of self-worth and self-esteem. They have been raised to believe they have to be perfect because if they're not perfect, then they're not lovable. If they're not lovable, they'll be abandoned. If they're abandoned, they're alone. And this terrifies them. In 99% of my cases, the targeted parent had the better bond with the children than the alienated parent. And this is also a trigger for them because they, they want to make sure they break that bond so the kids will only be bonded to them because they're the perfect parent. But if they're such a perfect parent, well, that means then that they can't go to therapy either because they're to a narcissist they're perfect and this is part of their narcissistic personality they're perfect so if they go to therapy it means something's wrong with them and they can never admit that the only way an alienating narcissistic parent will go to therapy is to prove to the therapist that they're perfect there's more to this so 99% of parents that I work with when I start asking them questions such as, do you know if your um, ex-spouse was abused as a child? 99% of them will tell me yes. They, they're either abused sexually, psychologically, or physically, and that nobody ever saved them. Well, in my opinion, that issue is now pushed through the children onto the other parent in an attempt to save little them. They, this alienating parent doesn't understand the borders and the boundaries between their family of origin and their history and their issues and those of the children. To them, they're all one. They can't see that there's a border and a boundary between the two. So this is also another problem that excels and exasperates this. And in doing, and in, a narcissist will use gaslighting to keep control and create a low sense of self-worth and self-esteem in somebody. Now, the term gaslighting actually came from a movie in the 1930s that was remade. It was actually a play, and it was remade several times as well as a movie. Basically, it's about a woman who dies, and her boyfriend knows that this dead, this dead woman has um, all these jewels hidden somewhere in her house. Well, the boyfriend convinces the dead woman's niece to marry him. You know, he starts courting her and marries him and convinces her to move back into the aunt's house so that he, unbeknownst to her, can start looking in the attic for all these gems and, these, and all these jewels. Back in the day, we used gaslighting. So every time a light is turned on in another room, it dims the lights in another room. So... When he would turn the lights on in the attic to look for the gems, the lights in the rest of the house would dim. And the, his, the, the niece would say to him, the lights are dimming. And he'd say, oh, no, this is all in your mind. This, the lights didn't dim. 
That's gaslighting. And that's how we got the term gaslighting. Another example of gaslighting from this movie is the gentleman gives her a brooch and she got a broken catch. So she puts it in her pocketbook. Unbeknownst to her, he takes the brooch out of the pocketbook and sticks it in a drawer somewhere. Now she can't find the brooch. And he says to her, see, you can't hold on to anything. Now you've lost the brooch I just gave you. She doesn't, real, she doesn't realize what's happened, that he's taken it out deliberately. And now she thinks she's crazy that she doesn't remember where she put it. Gaslighting again. Similar things can be done to children by selling them, oh, no, 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 don't you, don't you remember that time your father grabbed, grabbed your arm? And he, that was, he abused you. He grabbed you by the arm and bruised your arm. Well, no, that's not exactly what happened. What happened was the child was about to run into traffic so the parent grabbed the child by the arm and pulled him back to save their life. But the child's been gaslit to believe that the, that, that was abuse, not a parent trying to protect their child. I find this super interesting. Can you explain a bit more about narcissists and how we recognize narcissistic tendencies in our spouse or partner? I'm asking this as you mentioned it a lot throughout your website and your blog and so on. Hence, I think it's important that we cover these. Well, there are a lot of ways to recognize narcissistic personalities. Our problem is there's no, there, no one has come up with definitive tr treatment to fix it. Now, you also have to understand there are levels of narcissism. It is normal to have a small bit of narcissism because that's self-protecting. When you become, and that's called a tendency, or, or called um, normal um, narcissism. It's, it would be something minor like, um, you know, believing that the believing that you're really good at something and it might be true, it might not be true, but it's your belief. Okay. Yep, but that's just having confidence in our own abilities or having self-esteem or some self-worth. Right. And that's normal in order to have some sense of self-worth and self-esteem. It becomes a problem when nobody else is right, only you are right. You refuse anybody else's opinions, you, and everything has to be your way. So one way to recognize this is that when you go into mediation, if one party is willing to mediate and keeps offering up things and offering, and the other side categorically refuses anything that the other party is offering, be, that's, a, that's an indicator that there may be narcissism going on. Because a normal person, a normal person who can co-parent and doesn't believe that they're perfect and that only and that they're the only ones who could possibly be right, right, would be willing to mediate. Somebody who has such low self-esteem and self-worth self that has to believe that only they can be right and that they're perfect and nobody else could possibly raise these kids has narcissistic tendency. And how far that goes depends on how far that person is willing to inculcate be alienating behaviors in the children. They by default because they're not letting anybody beat them. They are perfect. They have to win at all costs. They also they also gaslight the other parent by making that parent feel like they're no good. That putting the, that parent constantly in the limelight in court, constantly filing false allegations of abuse, it actually gaslights that the targeted parent who ends up with um, a form of PTSD called legal abuse syndrome. And they end up with anxiety, they end up with stress, they can end up depressed and, and suicidal. The same qualifiers end up with kids. I must have four or five kids now who have all been put into the same institute here in Connecticut 
for cutting and, su and suicidal ideation. And in every one of those cases, the parent hasn't even seen the kid. In one of them, the parent hasn't seen the kid in five years. So how could it be that parent's fault that the child is cutting and suicidal? He's never made this child come and visit him. Yet the child claims that because the judge, the judge found the mother in contempt. The mother withheld these kids and hid them for four years from this father. He was ordered to produce those children for visitation or go to jail. So mother's not about to produce the kids because she's not going to lose. And the judge, and I know for a fact that the judge sees this case as an alien, as a fear case of alienation. So what the mother does instead is she pushes that child, making her feel really bad and torn by telling her her father's this horrible, terrible person. And in the meantime, her brothers are willing to go see her father. But she can't do that. So this poor kid blames the father, saying that it's because he forced her to go to visitation. He never forced her. He went and saw the kid. The two boys went with him. The daughter stayed with the mother. She was never forced to go to visitation. What this child is suffering from is a splitting of her personality, a splitting of her world. She has two worlds, but she's only allowed to live in one of them. She's only allowed to live in her mother's world. She can't have a world with her father. She can't have a life, or maybe it's two different lives. She's not allowed to have the life she has with her, with her father. She can only have the life she has with her mother. So this kid's cutting because she doesn't know what to do with the pain and the anger and the stress and, the, and having to be on, you know, perfect and follow in her mother's footsteps. She's now been admitted two times, three times. I have another one, a couple others with suicidal ideation that ended up in the same place because they, they're not seeing the other parent, but the kids feel guilty about it, but they can't say anything. They have nobody they can talk to about it. You might, in, in fact, you might not see this as suicidal. What you might see in a younger child is the child acting out in school, bullying. They might not, be, they may be always argumentative refuse to um, cooperate. Um, they may, you might find them um, being extremely aggressive in school, but at the same time, you might find them being perfect in school, like they get the best grades because they're so afraid of not being perfect, but they've got nowhere else for them to feel safe and free to express how they feel because they can't tell the one parent that they want to see the other parent because that parent's going to freak out on them. And they, if they tell the other parent that they want to see them, they're afraid that that's going to make even more traumas and they're going to get found out. And then that, the, the alienating parent is going to abandon them and treat them just like they treat the targeted parent. Kids start split psychologically. This is why it is so damaging. Well, that's the primary source of, ali of alienating tactics that, uh, an, ali that uh, an alienate, aggressive alienating parent will use. I would say 99% of my cases, and remember, I've been doing this for decades, the parents have been accused falsely of abuse and neglect. And it's proven to be false, but the courts don't know how to handle it. We're just now learning how to handle this. I know here in Connecticut, um, our Judge Albus has um, activated or incorporated the recommendations from the Family Justice Initiative which recommend how to fix and solve some of these issues that we're having in the family courts. Unfortunately, the attorneys are upset about this because they're going to lose money. Well, I'm sorry, your money isn't, is not as important as the mental health 
and future of these children who are going to be the future leaders of this country and this world. So we need to make sure that these children are not put through this kind of abuse. Talking about lawyers, I mentioned in our last week's episode that I believe that the family court lawyers are the ones who are making sure that PA don't get widely accepted and they're practically holding it back to make sure that they can keep making money of high-conflict divorces. So what do you think about that? It's not all attorneys. It's a few bad apples, or what we call the good old boys network. But unfortunately, your good old boys network has a very strong hold, if you will, on the market. And it, they are, many of them went to school or practice with these judges. So this is part of the problem. Um, and what I think these attorneys don't really realize that why would you ever want to be known as having the longest running divorce case or cases of anybody? Wouldn't you rather be known as somebody who creates an efficient, who has an efficient, positive approach to solving um, these, high, these, con, these types of divorces and being able to, and having a pattern that you use or a system that you use that you can follow, then, and then you get more clients. So you can charge a bit, you can charge, maybe you can charge a little more money because you're getting it done at a faster, in a faster, more efficient pattern that's safe for the children and the parents. Rather than drag us out destroying lives, I mean, who would want to be known as the oldest or, the, or having the most or the oldest, you know, divorce case? That just, that's just absurd. Or the most expensive divorce case. That's not a positive, positive comment on, on a person. Getting the job done in a consistent, smooth, and efficient manner, that's a positive note. You know what? Those, attorney, those clients, who cases have dragged on forever, I can tell you right now, would probably never recommend those attorneys for that very reason because it cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars and years of being in and out of court. I wouldn't recommend an attorney who did that to me or had let my case go that long. But you have to understand, there's another, another process that these attorneys use called price fixing. In fact, um, there's an attorney here in Connecticut who used to charge like $750. She was astronomical per hour. And what she would do is she would get together with the other attorneys, their other professionals, and they would all decide how much money they wanted to make. So once they all made the money they wanted to make, then they would help the, then they would have the parents settle their case or they would drop the case. So that's called price fixing. This attorney got caught and she was told you either retire or you face the music of these criminal charges. And so she decided to retire. What other profession allows a person to corrupt and be unethical and get away with it by allowing them to retire instead of paying, instead of taking on the consequences for their actions? Only attorneys. Yeah, I guess it's all about money for them. It's just a big engine working in corrupt and unethical ways to keep making money from parents and children who are suffering. These lawyers are living in big houses, driving big cars and getting a big paycheck, a salary and all that while the parents and children are suffering. That's exactly what it is. This is all about the money. Um, we also have attorneys that, and I have a couple of clients who've witnessed this, where they've witnessed the guardian ad litem being paid off. They, in this one case, the attorney said to my client, listen, for $25,000, and I'm, that's probably not the amount of money, it might have been more. 
uh, we can buy the guardian ad litem off and win this case. And my client said to that attorney, no, we are going to have a fair trial. I do not believe in doing that. And instead, the other side bought off the guardian ad litem. So this is, and that, that lawyer did get written up on that. Um, that was out of the Stanford area, I believe. But these are the things that we're seeing. This is what happens. Um, you know, it's who's got the connections, who's got the money, who's willing to pay who to buy off who. We, there's been um, a big research, I don't know if I call it research, but I, yeah, I guess it is. Research has been done by quite a few people um, who have shown a pattern with using real estate to buy off people, buy off these professionals or these judges or these other attorneys or guardian ad litems. Basically, what happens is the person has a, a mortgage and what they do is they take out a second mortgage or they have a mortgage or a, 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 and the other and the person paying them off buys, pays off part of their mortgage or pays off their second mortgage. And that's how or puts money towards it. And that's how they've been doing it. Or the person declares bankruptcy or foreclosure on their house and then they have somebody give them enough money to buy it out. And that's how they, you know, so they use real estate as different ways to flip the money that they're being paid. Whether that's still going on, I don't know, because that may have been exposed. But I know that was another thing that we were, there was, they were finding a pattern of behavior with. Do you have any idea on how to fix this? I can see how this is a big issue and how this big engine keeps turning while protecting all the corrupt agents. How can we change that? All right, so you have to understand. These the attorneys are attorneys. They do not have training in psychology, child, child abuse, coercive control. They have maybe a 30-minute to an hour's course. They don't have massive hours of training in it. The guardian ad litems, I know in Connecticut and in most states, guardian ad litems are attorneys. They are not mental health professionals. These, these attorneys or these people that are supposed to be representing and helping the children if they don't have a, a degree in mental health and haven't been properly trained in recognizing and assessing for coercive controlling behaviors, should not be work, should not be doing this. So they should not be guarding ad litems to the children or AMCs to the children. They don't have the training and education. So they, they can't possibly understand the damages. But if they really want to understand those damages, they really should be listening to the voices of these children. I, we run a, a show called um, Childhood Interrupted on the first Wednesday of every month. This show has adult children as well as children with their parents who come on. And these are children who have figured it out what has happened. They finally recognize that the other parent has deliberately tried to make them hate their targeted parent. And they speak up and they talk about how, you know, what was happening, what they felt, what they heard, what they wanted, what they needed, what they wished for. Um, you know, and what these kids are saying, or these adult alienated children are saying is just mind blowing often. It really shows the damages as well as word, word out of the mouth of babes that alienation is real. And this is the consequences that these people have had to go through. Victims to, victim to hero also does a child, a web, um, a series with, um, alienated children. I know our website has a whole bunch of videos from children. And I, there might be another place that, there, that there's been some of this done. So it's not like it's just me doing this. 
which I also have to say that, like I said, not all attorneys are like this and this devious and this greedy. The few that ruin it for the rest. Because it's so pervasive and so damaging to the system that the honest attorneys get slam dunked in the court. Can you explain a bit more about your childhood interrupted series and maybe give some episodes that our listeners can start with? There are, we're into season two. Season one has seven episodes. The strongest ones in the seven episodes are probably four, six, maybe seven. Um, the new seminar, the new season, the first one, the, the, all three of them were very good. Actually, second season, all of them are good. Yeah, we're in part. We're in part three. We're actually on episode. We're coming up on episode four of season two. Um, yes, I, and by the way, you said I have a very, a, cha- a very full website. There are other websites with a lot of resources out there. We have some new ones that are just specific to evidentiary info and, um, and dedicated to parental alienation, the myths and things. We have other websites by um, Howie Dennison in Ohio. He's got an awful lot of information out there as well. So I'm not the only one out there. Yes, I have a more probably well-rounded one in that I have got 30-something years worth of work stockpiled in here. But that's probably only because we're the oldest running nonprofit, 501c3 nonprofit for parental alienation. As someone who's been running a charity to help those who got alienated, for more than 30 years now, what are the main challenges that you have been facing when it comes to helping those affected by parental alienation? Right. The first challenge is that by the time most of these parents get to us, they are financially devastated. It is one of the reasons why, you know, we rely on membership and it's dirt cheap. It's only $25 once a year to help pay to keep all of that site running, to keep me able to keep, to give responses, to have emails to create legislate to create committees and do what I'm what we're doing here. Um, that's number one. So when they come to us, their cases are already kind of a mess. The second part is, by the time they come to us, they have such severe PTSD, stress, and anxiety. I could get an email from a client, and I can tell right away whether they have PTSD by the way it's written, by the sentences being all one big paragraph, or there's there's no capitals, or there's no punctuation. Um, and yes, some of this could be just them typing very fast, but in that typing very fast or because they don't, their English isn't their natural language. I've got that, but not when I'm not, when I know that this is a person who speaks English fluently, I can tell immediately they have PTSD by the, what I call a long diatribe. I can tell in when they, they, they respond to me and they keep sending me the same information over and over and they keep repeating themselves over and over. Uh, that's how I know that their PTSD, stress, and anxiety is off the charts. That, that's very hard because I, I immediately, my first thing is you need to be sure that you're in with a therapist who can help you with these triggers. These are all situational triggers related to being psychologically abused, gaslit, and from this living death of not having your children in your life. So, so you're going to ask me, why do I call it a living death? I'm going to pre, I'm going to jump ahead of you here. It's because If a child dies and we bury them in the ground, there's closure. We know where they are. When a child is kidnapped, whether physically or psychologically, we don't know anything. These kids are physically and emotionally and psychologically dead to us. They're not there. It's a living death. We don't know where they are. We know know or assume they're still alive, but we have no closure. 
That's why it's a living death because there is no closure. Can you explain a bit about the PTSD that these parents face? I think it's quite counterintuitive and can help our listeners to understand people in their lives who are going through similar situations. Okay, so I, there is, this is a twofold thing here. First of all, 99% of the parents I work with have PTSD, stress, and anxiety. If they tell me they don't, I have to wonder if they're even alienated. There is no way a parent who has, who's living in this living death world has no closure for their kids, is constantly being gaslit and pubbled, doesn't have PTSD, stress, and anxiety. If you have PTSD, stress, and anxiety from what we call legal abuse syndrome and this lack of having your kids in your life, you actually qualify under the ADA. What's the ADA? It's the Americans Disability Act. Because when you, when these parents, many of them are pro se and they get into court, they cannot, they get puddled because the their other side has an attorney. They're going on and on and on and on and on and on and on. So when that the other when my alienated pro se parent goes to try and respond, they're they're all they're doing is they're in defense mode, defending against everything this other person has said instead of presenting what they came to court to present. It's because they've been triggered and they can't and they completely lose track of everything they had to do. And they're now on the defensive. That's one way that I see it and how it affects them. The other thing is you'll see things like, um, like I said, the diatribes or the excessive emails. Um, I will see them breaking down and crying them giving, you know, I see I have one where I have a couple where they can't do anything with family because it's too it's just too close for them. One of them, I have one who can't even go into the church because she sees other families and church members and family, you know, families there with their kids. And this is very hard for her because that was very important to her with her family. I have others that can't go to socialize because they're, it brings back all the friends that they lost because of the alienation. I have others who, um, who have been falsely accused of being mentally ill. They're afraid to even activate their ADA accommodations because they're afraid they're going to be, it'll be used against them. What people don't understand is that there's a difference between having situational PTSD, stress, and anxiety, which are conditions. They're not diseases. They're not illnesses. They can be solved for with proper training, with proper education and training and therapy. Okay, it's not a permanent thing versus somebody having bipolar, which needs medication. Someone who's got schizophrenia. Those are illnesses, not necessarily a condition that can be fixed. Also, under the ADA, it is discrimination to deny access to somebody who is disabled without providing them equal and the same resources and accommodations and um, professional assistance or whatever is needed to assist them so that they can function to be a good parent. The whole objective of, let's say, child protective services is to make, to keep the family together. So just because someone's got PTSD, stress, and anxiety, let's say they were raped, doesn't mean they can't parent their kids. They might need some counseling to get through it. Just because somebody was in the military and witnessed their whole team being blown up and killed, doesn't mean they can't be a parent. If we considered People who have PTSD, stress, and anxiety as unable to parent their children, most military would not have their children. And that's not okay. That's discrimination. These are all conditions, not something that impedes with their parent. 
skills. I have one, I have two clients who are accused of, of being mentally ill because they do not believe in eating meat. They don't believe in eating what they call dead carcasses. This is a First Amendment right and a religious right to not have to eat meat. So, but they're they're accused of being mentally ill because they because they don't eat meat, and that would mean that every Hindu is not competent to parent their children because cows are sacred and they don't eat meat. That's how insane that theory is. But I, I've got parents who have been who have lost custody of their kids because of it, and they and the, and the other side can't even prove that the children are malnourished. But in fact, the children are not malnourished. The pediatrician said they're actually looking great and their weight is perfect. So how could that be make them a bad parent? So back to this PTSD thing. All of that causes triggers in people. So for example, many of my parents can't even open their emails from the other parent because they know they're going to get attacked. So they have somebody else open them for them. That's one way to deal with the PTSD of having to open the mail, your emails. The same theory comes with the, you know, the U.S. mail. Many people are afraid to go out and get the U.S. mail because they're afraid there's going to be another motion and another court order and another something else attacking them. But these are PTSD, stress, and anxieties that are situational and specific to the legal abuse that they are enduring with the constant attacks, the false allegations, and having the children removed from their lives. What do you suggest that the family members or close friends of those who are suffering with these types of PTSD or anxiety can do to help them. Right. Direct them toward parental alienation groups and support groups in particular. We have support groups. We have places. We have my nonprofit in particular is over 50 chapters around the world. I have so many people out there that I can connect them with so they can find out they're not alone, that there are other parents like this. Um, we used to do something here called court watching. When a parent would have to go to court, other parents who were aware of what was going on and that this parent was being abused by the system would go and sit into the courtrooms to listen what, to listen, so they could be a witness to the corruption. Um, and it also made the judges have to act more reasonably. What they can also do is ask that make sure that they find a therapist who is trained in parental alienation and coercive control and this type of kind of abuse. Because that person's going to be able to better adjust and teach them how to deal with the triggers and the people the stress, the anxiety, so that they can manage their cases. One of the biggest problems that um, we find, and this is developed by Steve Miller, Dr. Steve Miller from Massachusetts, he has something called the four A's and the four C's. Well, the four C's apply to the, the alienators. What they found, or what he has found, is that the alienators come across as calm, cool, collected, and charming. I believe it is. Calm, cool. Convincing, I guess. And, oh, convincing. Thank you. So everybody believes them because they're, they, they're not anxious. They're not, they're not upset. Whereas the alienated parent has the four A's. Angry, afraid, anxious, and agitated. They automatically present poorly. But that has been the objective of the alienating parent, to make sure they puzzle this other parent to such a level that they present poorly. They trigger them beyond belief to make sure they present poorly. And this is why it is mandatory that these parents be in with a therapist who can document what, this, what they have, document that it's situational, document the treatment, and document what, they, what needs to be done for this to stop and for this, this abuse to be stopped. 
How about the kids who are going through this? How can we help them? All right. This is going to depend on the level. So if you have a very mild case, mild is the kids are still coming. Um, they might be a little off at first when they come and, and hibernate in the rooms, but they come back, they come out and they're fine and they want to spend time with you. They have a great time with you. And then they might say the things to you like, well, mommy says you didn't pay the child support. And you say, no, think about it. If that was the case, then how did mom afford to do X, Y, and Z, right? Or, it, or they might say, or they might say, no, that's not true. I mean, this is really an adult matter, but if you want, I can show you the proof that I paid all the child support. I would prefer not having to do that, but it, that's not true. Or the kid might say, well, you know, mom says that you did X, Y, Z to us on Valentine's Day one year. And you say, no, no, that's not actually true. Well, I did give you X, Y, Z. This is what happened. Okay. So they're helping the kid to critically think and remember the positive memories. And so they have a relationship with the child. Then you have mild to moderate, which is which which means that it's they're a little bit over the top being mild, that maybe they're taking longer for them to calm down, but they're more and so they're more moderately um alienated. Moderately, and I'm gonna call these levels or stages of alienation. The mild is usually what you see in the very, very beginning for sure. Mild all alienation starts out mild. Moderate. These kids are pretty verbose. They pretty much don't want to have anything to do with you. They may be coming to your house, but they're barely inter interacting with you. Severe alienation. These kids aren't even coming anymore, pretty much. It's they're pretty much out of your life. And if they come, they are, it's dangerous. So you have degrees of mild, mild, moderate, 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 mild, moderate, severe to severe. So, you know, with mild, you might be as a parent, be able to adjust to it or be able to get the family into you know, you know, family counseling to work through these things. Moderate, you can try doing critical thinking and see if it helps, but oftentimes it does require specialized therapy and it may actually require reunification therapy, intensive reunification therapy with somebody who's properly trained. Severe absolutely needs intensive reunification. There is no other way to fix it. That fix could be anywhere from the parent um, in the moderated ca moderate case where there's more time given to the targeted parent and less time given to the alienating parent or where the alienating parent loses not visitation altogether for 90 days and the targeted parent gets temporary sole custody and the other parent has to pay for the intensive reunification therapy to fix the problem. And there's a lot of other parameters that go in here. That's just one of the, one of the ways that it can be managed. Um, and that's pretty much how most proper reunification do is done because there is a serious issue if it's not done in some sort of fashion like this. Parental alienation is extremely counterintuitive. Normally in therapy, we give the identified patient all the control and all the power. Moderate, we're, we, we've got to get the kids into therapy and proper therapy. Um, and it can't just be anybody because it's, like I said, counterintuitive. In with proper therapy for parental alienation is to give back the authority and the power of a parent. And the only way you can do that is by removing the other parent out of the equation, because every time you give power back to the targeted parent, the alienator takes it away again by rewriting the history or making another false memory 
So in, in these people helping their friends, they need to make sure their friends are getting proper therapy. They need to make sure their friends are connecting with support groups and other parents going through this so they don't feel alone. They need to be listening to what the children who have been alienated are saying so they understand what their child's going through. Do need to understand that the alienating parent has a psychological makeup that is causing this. And when you can understand what's causing them to behave this way, you might have a better way of learning how to work with that parent. Will you get that parent to turn around? We don't know. But, you know, at least we can try and find a way to maybe get the kids so they can get through it in a safer, more um, healthy manner. The more we understand, the easier it is for us to maybe do that. Not only that, more and more of our TV shows and our movies are portraying um, scenes or, or mentioning parental alienation. So children are now starting to see this and all of a sudden getting an epiphany that it sounds like their life. And so we're finding that some of these younger kids are, or some, some of them are really starting to figure it out. Now going over 30, I'm finding it's a little harder. Those kids seem to be more stuck in it because it's been decades for them. But I feel like the younger ones, may get it a little bit easier. I'm not telling all of you, I'm telling you that all of them will, but I think those resources are now out there. For example, when I first started going through this with my husband and seeing what was happening to him, I put in the words, not getting visitation or denied visitation. Well, that brought all this information up about parental alienation from Dr. Gardner. The kids are doing the same thing. They might be putting in, well, my mother says my father did X, or my mother keeps telling me, telling me I can't like my father. Uh, is that okay? You know, they might put in a question, and now they're getting the information, and they start reading. And while they might not shift immediately, as they learn more, and they get into school, and they take classes, and whatever, and see move, they might start to get an epiphany. Can't guarantee it, but it's there. It's there for the educating. And that's one of the things we have to hope is that these kids, once they age out of the system, if they haven't redeveloped the relationship, that they figure it out. In fact, our third episode in the second season, um, we had a young mother named Sarah come on. And she hadn't seen her father since, I want to say she was two or three years old. She was 20, 24 now. And so 18 years, she hadn't seen her father. And when she had her own daughter, all of a sudden, and I guess something clicked. And then she started to, I guess, look things up and it all started to click. And she finally reached out to her father and she and her father are now connected together. But it took 18 years and her being 24. Now, that being said, I'm also going to tell you that the human brain does not stop growing till age 25, does not stop maturing till age 35. Our own federal and state governments, using scientific evidence, decided that children should not allow to be able to vote till they're 18, drink or smoke till they're 21, or drive or rent a car till they're 25. So if our own state and federal governments, using scientific data, feel that children aren't old enough to do those things until they're 18, 21, and 25, then how can we possibly say that a child who's a minor and under the age of 18 has the emotional mental maturity to make such a decision so momentous as to remove one parent from their life? They can't. So that's a big, um, a big problem because they've, they're, they have this development that arrested. Um, but yet 
They've been parentified and adultified. What's parentified? That means they're being t- treated as if they're a parent, that they're the that they're uh, the co-parent to the alienating parent. What's adultified? That's when they're treated as an adult. These kids have completely missed entire stages of the of emotional mental development. And the only way to get that back, unfortunately, is you need to bring that child back to where their emotional mental development stopped and gradually bring them back through. Not It doesn't have to take decades, but somebody has to gradually bring them through all of those stages of emotional mental development that they skip because of the alienation and the brainwashing. From what you're saying, I feel that popular media and movies are a good way to expose the kids to the reality of what's happening. It's a soft way to introduce the complex things within a parental alienation issue or even a divorce. Do you agree? Yes. In fact, if you go out to my website, under educational, you can down to book, you can go to books, you can go to movies um, in there. And we have books by, um, that, uh, uh, by parents. We have books by children. And we have books by um, professionals out there. We have kids' books listed. But under the movies, we actually list a whole lot of movies that involve parental alienation stories. Most of them don't even mention the word parental alienation. So, for example, you've got Mrs. Doubtfire. That's the first one that I always, my main one I go to. Yes, granted, it's a father. And granted, he was a little outlandish in what he did. The point is, he, was, he did become alienated from his kids and he did anything just to get to be in their lives. And he actually did a very wonderful thing doing it by doing it in the way he did it. You also have Rapunzel, which is about somebody being alienated. You, the, this is the Disney or uh, the comic version of it. Um, there's a movie by Sylvester Stallone, the one with Over the Top. It's a 1987 movie where he's alienated from his uh, child. You have Tangled, which is the Rapunzel story. You have another one called Coraline, which is a Halloween movie about a girl being pulled between two um, worlds or two houses. Same thing. These kids are being pulled between two, two houses and two lives. Um, there's something. We also have some educational things like um, for children that are ages eight and up, or nine and up. There's something called Split by Ellen Bruno. Then you've got the DVD, which by Dr. Uh, Warshak called Welcome Back Pluto. But I would recommend that being done with a therapist. You also have some other older adult movies called ACOD, which is, stands for Adult Children of Divorce by Stu Zimmerman. I think that movie came out about three, four years ago. Then you've got the movie Custody. There's Divorce Corp, which is also more educational. And there's a movie called Between the Laughter, which is a 1984 movie. You have Kramer versus Kramer. Like Dandelion Dust, Madam, Madam X, Sherry Baby. There's another one called The Marriage or The Marriage Story. So there is a lot of stuff out there. And I list these on my website. And if anybody has others, send them to me. I'll put them on the site, okay? Because the more we build this library, the more resources you guys have. Uh, several TV shows where the, wor- the words parental alienation are used. One of them was Law and Order. I think one of them was another crime, crime type program like that. I can't think of the name right now. And I believe I've seen it on maybe possibly Jordan. Actually, there's one thing I w- did want to bring up that people don't also realize. I mean, there's a case out there where um, father brainwashed his child, his daughter, to the point that he convinced her to kill her mother. 
to kill her mother, help him. And she wouldn't do the killing, but he convinced her to help him set her mother up and kill her. Oh, I'm in, I, I forget the name of the, of the case at this point. Um, I just had it up. Tenen, 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 something like that, I think is the name. There were, we have a ton of these stories. And that's the other thing that blows my mind. These parents or these people that claim the parental alienation doesn't exist and that women never abuse their, the other parent. Can you please explain to me why then Lifetime and Hallmark have been able to produce series of shows that are specific to female murderers and female abusers based off of true stories? <laughs> I mean, if they didn't exist, then they wouldn't be making these, they wouldn't have these true story, true crime stories on Hallmark and Lifetime. They just wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. I just realized it as you were saying it as well. If these things are not real, there won't be any plot points in any of these true crime series about it. It must be real for these shows to exist. I briefly checked out your first and second book. I really like the title of your first book, How Did I Miss the Science? It's one of those things I hear many people say when it comes to parental alienation. Of course, by the time they say it, it's kind of too late. But can you explain a bit about this book and what science are we speaking about? Okay, so let's start with, I started, this book started with when I started going to school for my master's in marriage and family therapy and finishing, actually, when I went, started going to school for my BS in psychology and um, business, I had started writing articles. And I began to take those articles and put them together in a book. And then I went for my master's and I started writing more articles and more and more paperwork. And I started putting those further into the book. And that's how I was able to develop this book with all this information. And I, but I wanted it written to be 90% in layman terms because I was finding that many of the parents, you know, they were getting these technological, I guess, textbooks and books that were written. And they were a lot, they were missing a lot of the things because they were going over their heads. It was all too much big words and big terminology. So I tried to bring it down to what I call a layman's terms. And in doing that, I also was working with thousands of parents. And I put out a questionnaire asking people, what should I call this book? I said, you know, I want, and I put out my, the several names I came up with based on what people were saying to me, which was, where did I go wrong? How did I miss the signs? That was the thing that they almost everyone would say to me. Well, from that, we be I began to develop what's called my red flag behaviors. It started out with me asking parents, these thousands and thousands of parents, to give me examples of alienating behavior that they now recognize to be alienating. We started out, we had maybe 75, 100, 167. We grew to over 200 red flag behaviors. Well, they were all listed as one big thing. So I, st we, I started working with several other people, um, Shoji Zhang, Linda Gottlieb, Brian Ludmer, um, Catherine McWillie. And we started organizing them. And then we started color coding them. And we put them into categories. Well, we ended up with, I think, 11 categories of behaviors or categories of areas that a parent could use to alienate him. So things like um, changing, you know, you not calling them by mom or dad, changing their significant name. One of them might be activities, the parent being blocked from the activities or not told about activities. And there are like 40 different 
common things that might happen in there. Communication, how, you know, not being able to communicate with the kids, not the communication lacking with the other family, the other side of the family. Court orders and legal issues, enmeshment, alignment, loyalty, conflicts, intrusive tactics. That's another category. Extended family and friend issues. That's another category that they would do stuff in. Medical and professional use issues, name issues, school issues, symbolic connection issues. Okay, what's a symbolic connection? All the pictures of the targeted parent are cut out or removed from the walls. Uh, visitation issues. And then I had one last category called situation specific, not otherwise listed. So parents could put other categories in. One of the things red flag behaviors would be withholding children from activities because the other parent may or will attend. Another, another red flag, flag, parent completely controls the child's social life. Another red flag, parent becomes overwhelmingly and in, overly involved with the child's activities, i.e. Cub Scouts leader, parent support worker, so that they are constantly with the children and keep the other parent from attending these activities. But this helps me that if a parent is willing to fill this out, I can then, you know, get an idea. Okay, this is a mild case. This is a mild moderate. This is a moderate. Or these are the areas we need to work on. There seems to be a problem with getting school information. There seems to be a problem with activities. Some kids, some kids, you know, they're not in school yet or they're homeschooled. So it's harder for us to, you know, it's a different dynamic. But this was one of the tools that I developed to help me. And it probably would help other professionals to recognize and assess for parental alienation. But we also have 15 other tools for assessing. One of the simplest ones probably is the five-factor model by Bill Burnett et al., meaning, and others, um, that is out there. But we have like 15 others of these. There's one out of um, university, um, no, I want to say it's Connecticut University, University of Connecticut, by the, uh, Ron and Nancy Rahner. They have a program called PARC, or um, Parental Acceptance and Rejection Questionnaire. And it's both not used for the child and for the parent. Um, trying to think, what else did we develop and has been developed? There's so much stuff that's been developed to help educate and train people that, you know, there's no excuse for people not knowing it and understanding it and at least looking into it. From what I understand, your second book, Broken Family Bonds, is all about documenting stories of those who have gone through parental alienation. I think it's super powerful to tell the story through the eyes of the victims. So that's what you're trying to do. Is that right? You know, every one of those stories, poignant. And, the, and to be honest, the point of that book was really to collect more and more stories from parents and children who suffered from parental alienation. So that when we walk into a court of law or we walk into a group or into a conference and people are saying parental alienation doesn't exist, then please explain to me how these people are writing about what they went through. That how can you tell me that not one of these people is not an alienated person or an alienated parent when we have story after story? They, I, it was supposed to be meant to collect all these stories, just like the childhood interrupted videos is a way for us to show, well, how can you say this doesn't exist when these people are speaking out about what it was like and how they felt and how it harmed them? Most poignant. I, I mean, my husband's story is horrible. And to be honest, it has, it is very, it is very hard for us. Um, it's been a constant thorn for him because he is not able to really press it and talk about it. I guess here's one. I have a client and this is one that proves my point 
that parents are falsely alienated. Um, I have a client up in New Hampshire. She's got two daughters with her um, first husband. And she has one son with her second husband. First husband abused her. Um, there is multitudes of proof of the abuse, hospital records. And so at one point when she was, he abused her in front of the children, and I believe the children may have been also part of it. She grabbed the children and went to, um, her, in, uh, to her family's home, I think in New York somewhere. While down there, she had contacted DCF and they said to her, they're opening investigation. They started looking into it and they told her, you, can absolutely, you absolutely cannot return these children to him until we figured out what's going on here. Um, because she had police reports of the abuse and the abuse was documented. Well, he goes into the court and unfortunately, New Hampshire, this particular judge they got stuck in front of is a father's rights advocate and only believes that fathers are right. And the prevailing belief in New Hampshire is that any woman who claims abuse is an alienator. So he goes into court and files a contempt of court orders claiming that she's, he's being alienated from the children. Well, he's not being alienated. This mother's in a catch-22. She's being told she can't return the children by DCF or Child Protective Services, and the courts have an order, and Child Protective Services' mistake was not going to the courts and saying, we are placing a temporary order to block visitation until we've resolved this. Had they done that, none of this would have happened. So he ends up with custody of the kids. She ends up with super with supervised visitation. Then she ends up with unsupervised. She's now remarried and he's still blocking her. Well, the kids are coming to her house, but very it's unsupervised. It's very limited. And her older daughter starts to recognize that something's not right. She sees her mother had taken pictures of their time in New York and things that they had done. And the child had been told that the mother had kidnapped them. When in actuality, she, it was her custodial time and they were on vacation and he, she had just tapped the time with him abusing her. And so she was able, you know, to whatever, go away with them. But she had all these photos of the time that they had gone away and the child had been told they had been kidnapped. And the child says, well, mom, when did this happen? And she explains to the child, oh, this was when we went to New York. She says, but dad said you kidnapped us. She says, no, I did not kidnap you. His dad says we had a terrible time. I said, no. She goes, I remember this. I had a great time. So the child is starting to put the pieces together. And the child starts now, you have to understand, this is now going on six or seven years that this child has been alienated from her mother by the father, not the other way around. Now the child starts cutting and the mother says, to, tells the father, listen, you need to be aware here. I think our child's cutting. We need to get his. Oh, no, no. She's only doing that in your house. Nope. What's going on in his house? And then the child starts to become suicidal because the child's now going back to her father's and, and hearing her father slam dunk her mother and her. She's now realizing that her mother isn't the problem, that it's the father. The child then starts to freak out because her father starts going after her. He takes her cell phone and breaks it in her face. He punches a hole through the wall next to the child's head. But nobody will believe this child that this stuff is going on. The stepmother constantly telling her she's fat, that she's stupid. 
nobody will do with anything with it. It took nine years with this co- child going in and out of, out of the mental hospitals and um, residences and residential homes for a year and a half to get the residential to finally convince Child Protective Services that what was really going on was the father and stepmother were abusing the children. Now, she got custody. It took us nine years for her to get custody of the eldest child back, but the youngest one is still still living part-time between the two houses and is still being puzzled by the father. I think that is one of my one of the worst cases. And in the meantime, they've got a half brother who at two and three years old couldn't understand why he couldn't see his sisters. I think that case is horrific. That child has that older child and the younger one. They have suffered immensely. I mean, there were things going on like the younger child was very involved in dance, I want to say. And the father didn't want the kid dancing. He didn't think it was any, it was, the kid was any good. And the stepmother would tell you, you're no good anyway. So why do you want to go? Why are you bothering to practice? Neither the father or stepmother showed up to this kid's recitals. Do you know how harmful that was to this younger child? And then there's um, situations with the older kid where she's running away, where, where she tell, reports to the dog warden, uh, to her mother and then to the dog warden that the father's shooting BBs at her mother, at the dog. The mother, the mother left her, the dogs with the children and the father because she knew how important these dog, the dog was to the children. And the father hated anything associated to the mother. So he had the dog chained up outside and he would shoot BB guns at it. The dog, somebody finally let the dog go and the dog ran away and the dog warden found it. And the dog was registered to the client. So it was brought back to the client and the client and the dog warden would not allow her to ever return the dog to the father because of the abuse. It is not unusual for somebody who abuses animals to abuse children. Got another one with that. Father killed, father was poisoning the dog with arsenic. We were pretty sure of it or something along those lines. And because the mother left, this is a completely other case out of Connecticut. The mother knew how important the dog was for the emotional security to her kids. And they had already alienated the two older boys and was working on the daughter. But the daughter refused, again, to hate her mother. And because she refused to hate her mother, the father puzzled her emotionally, psychologically. She was cutting and suicidal. This is my biggest concern. When we have a child who refuses to back down, hate the other parent, that's the child that gets puzzled the worst with the alienation. And that's the child that ends up splitting psychologically. The father was poisoning the dog and the dog wasn't dying fast enough. So one night, he um, brought home a piece of steak, red meat. Now, he never fed the dog anything like this. And anything that was, and he, and he always saved leftovers. So the do- daughter couldn't understand why he bought this piece of meat and cut it up and gave it to the dog and then threw the rest of it away. And the daughter had taken a piece of it and eaten it. That night, she had the worst stomach ache imaginable. We're pretty sure he poisoned the dog and didn't really expect the daughter to eat any of the steak he was giving the dog. And the dog that night was found dead or dying when they got home from the conference they went to. The, the children's cat disappeared. The children's tor- turtle disappeared. One point, the, door, the house, um, the attached garage caught on fire. And the father, because the father was doing something illegal in the garage, neither the father nor the two brothers nor their friend went in the house to get the daughter out of the house. Well, at the time, 
The mother was barred from contacting the daughter. And the daughter was barred from contacting her mother. So she had nobody to talk to. So she had to call me so that I could call her mother. So her mother could talk her and I could, the mother could tell me what to tell the child. This mother eventually did get her child back because of my testifying and, uh, and other things that occurred during the case file. But this child also very badly damaged. The two boys, horribly damaged. I mean, I could go on, on and on with stories. And in both of those cases, the children, the mothers were falsely accused of alienation. And it was the, actually the father doing the alienation. Okay. Now I got other cases where the father is alienated and absolutely devastated. They've, like I said, the father who um, was falsely accused of sexually abusing his children. I have cases where I have fathers who've been falsely accused of abuse over and over with it constantly coming back as unsubstantiated, unsubstantiated, and nobody does anything. And these fathers are so petrified to even see their kids anymore because they can't afford to keep being arrested or falsely charged. So they give up. I think a lot of men do suffer emotionally and mentally due to all these issues. But they choose to not talk much about it since they are raised to be strong and masculine and all that. That's why there seems to be a perception that there are more mothers who are suffering. But there is a high probability just as much suffering is happening in both the genders. With that said, I feel that lots of people who go through these situations will end up having trouble moving forward with their life or dating someone else or even getting married as they end up developing a fear that these things can happen again or they end up developing trust issues and all that. Do you have any opinions on this and how to help them? I think that your opinions are valid here because you have practically done that in your own life. That's one of the things that I actually advocate with my parents. So the first thing we have to recognize is that most men do, were raised that they kept everything inside. You did not emote. You did not tell anybody. You had to be strong. So this is one of the reasons a lot of fathers don't tell their stories. And so we were seeing a lot more women sometimes being alienated than fathers, okay? So I would get the fathers and they would come to me, but mo many times, a lot of them wouldn't tell their stories because they were too afraid that nobody would understand. They can't talk their feelings out. But we see that with the mothers because you have to remember, a mother losing custody of your kids is horrific because if you lose custody of ki your kids, that must mean you're a horrible, terrible mother. And so these mothers end up committing suicide because they, they don't understand. They, they, they can't understand how they could be convicted of being such a horrible, terrible mother to lose custody of their kids. They must be terrible then. And so the, all they've been gaslit and now all their self-esteem and self-worth has been completely shot to the point that they're so depressed they commit suicide. So it's the same thing by telling a father you're a lousy father. Just destroys them, gaslits them to suicide. You're talking about moving forward. You know, I don't call it moving on. I call it moving forward. Moving on means that you're forgetting about it. Moving forward means you it's still there, but you're moving forward to the next stage. So one of the things that I try to explain to my clients is something called HHSS. And what this stands for is happy, healthy, successful, and spiritually positive. Happy, enjoy your life. Healthy, mind and body. Exercise, no, you don't have to be a triathlon athlete. Walk, run, whatever, bike. And get counseling. Make sure you're in therapy to manage the emotions and the trauma of this abuse. Success, it's not about how much money you make. It's about whether you enjoy the way, what you're doing and making money. Yes, some people have to work a job they hate. 
but they have other things that they do in their life that, you know, they do enjoy. And that's success when you have something you enjoy in life. And spiritually positive, it's not about religion. It's about believing in yourself. Now, this isn't something you have 24-7. Nobody can have this 24-7. It's just not possible. Our world changes. Our lives change. But it's something we can strive for. And the reason we want to strive for this, because the more HSS you are, the more control of your life you have. The more control you have, the less control the alienator has. The less control the alienator has, the more out of control the alienator gets, and the more obvious it becomes who the problem is, and we've come full circle. Plus, you deserve to be able to have, to be HHSF, especially because you, this is what's going to enable you to be there for your children when they finally get it. If you do not figure out how to be HHSS, you may go and die before your children ever find it out and ever find out what it is. And when they find out, there is no closure for them because you've already passed on. And that is extremely damaging for the children. Now, you did ask a very good question. Well, you know, most of these people are terrified to create a relationship with another person that this is going to happen again. And believe it or not, I have several parents who got themselves into it, didn't jump into another relationship that did end up being another problem because they weren't ready to move forward yet. You really kind of have to have that HHSS in place in some level to be able to move on to another relationship because otherwise you're bringing all that baggage into the new relationship and draining the relationship. And you, and you also don't believe in yourself. And if you don't believe in yourself, you're not going to believe in the new relationship either. And you're not going to have the positive force reinforcement that that new relationship could give you. Yeah. Okay. So here's your problem. Most targeted alienated parents are empathetic and compassionate. That is the problem. They feel for their children. That's how they got stuck in this is because they were so empathetic and compassionate. The other parents trampled all over them and control them. So I'm not saying that don't be empathetic and don't be compassionate, but also be able to recognize when your personal borders and boundaries are being crossed over, stepped on, and leaving you with nothing, okay? Got to be able to recognize that if you're finding that you're not, that, you know, you keep sitting back and not standing up to somebody who's saying something that's not right about you, that's a problem. And you need to have the confidence in yourself to know that what they're saying is wrong and that you can voice it and say, no, that's not true. I don't believe that. Or no, that hurts my feelings. Help, that helps to be able to emote, say those things. Your biggest problem is the narcissists don't have empathy and compassion. They did not learn that when they were growing up. They grew up in a family that in probably 90 to 99% of those cases were alienated from one of their parents or one of their parents was a very controlling person and the other parent was the peacemaker go with the flow. And so this is all they learned. In fact, I explain it this way. If your whole life you were taught to walk backwards and you get out in the real world and everybody else is walking forward, well, everyone else has to be wrong because if they're not wrong, then your whole entire life is a lie. And for a narcissist, that is absolutely not possible and not doable because then it means they, that, they, they, that everything they know about relationships and families 
is not validity or hold water. And for them to have to redo that whole world is momentous. And it means they have to admit they're not perfect and that their lives were not perfect and that their families were not perfect. Anybody who tells you their family is perfect and there's never any issues, that's a red flag that they're narcissists. Nobody's family's perfect. In fact, there is no such thing as the perfect person. Most people have a slight deviation or, or dysfunction or family has some kind of dysfunction or dis difference from another family. That's what makes us different. Everybody's got something. There's no, no when, we, when someone says their child's perfectly normal, average person, that means they fall within a continuum of some sort. There is no such thing as the perfect. Nobody's perfect. That's why we are human. Sadly, this becomes a problem with many of my parents who view the targeted parent as being evil. And I understand why they see them as evil. Because their behavior is so, the alienating behavior is so destructive. But they're not really evil. They're mentally ill. They've been raised in a very unfortunate situation and they don't know any other way. And getting them to change for these alienators is, is almost impossible. It really is. I think I've only heard of a few cases where the alienator finally got it. In one case, the father had been alienated from his daughter for many years. And the daughter was killed on, in a um, snowmobile accident. And so there was never any closure for the father. And at that point, the mother finally wrote to the father and said, I am so sorry. I should never have done what I did. You were really a good father. And she apologized profusely for breaking up the relationship between the father and that daughter that died. I have a couple other cases where I've had parents come to me who are alienating. And I've said to them, no, that is an alienating behavior. And I explain to them how it's alienating, why it, and what the harm it's doing. And they go, oh my God. And it's like an epiphany. I just happened to hit somebody who isn't a complete narcissist. They just are in self-protection mode. And so they start to realize, oh my God, you're right. That you're right. And so I've had a few of them be able to fix their behavior by teaching them and showing them why that what they're doing isn't okay or how it's disruptive. But I don't get very many alienators who call me. <laughs> we keep talking about narcissistic behavior and narcissist. Say someone who's listening to this podcast recognizes the early behaviors of this in their partner. What can they do to help them? Or say they recognize this particular dynamics happening with the family of their spouse, where one parent is controlling and the other is not, what can they do as the one that's already married to the other person or in a relationship with the other person to fix the situation in order to avoid any further issues or future issues? Yes, it's going to depend on a lot of things. I guess, number one, it's going to depend on whether that child has taken on the characteristics of the controlling parent or the characteristics of the passive go with the flow parent or this child has stayed steady course in the middle. So without knowing that, I don't, you can't tell the parent kind of what to do because, or the person what to do with the relationship, because if the child is following the controlling parent, then more than likely this relationship will not last, especially if the other parent um, does not like being controlled, okay? Or 
doesn't feel like an equal in the relationship. If the other parent, if the alienating parent or the other person they're dating, the passive peeps make or go with flow, and they're just as kind of that way, well, it, then, they, then they'll probably work. But what will end up happening is that that parent, those par- those, that, them as a couple, will probably not have a relationship with the other person's family because the other person's family will absolutely never allow that child to have a relationship with that person because they're going to fear that that person's going to, you know, be able to convince their child to not behave like them. And, to, and so they get frightened that they're not going to have control. Quite often what we see is that the, alien, the family of origin for the alienating parent, if they cannot control their child's partner, they will pummel and destroy that relationship. Now, if the person sat in the middle and they didn't take sides at all, that's probably a good place to be because you know that that person is not going to take sides, is going to be level-headed in the divorce. But there's no guarantee that any of this is going to happen. You have to really watch how their family dynamics work. What happens when you get into an argument? What happens when you have to make, if you had to make a decision about something? What happened, you know, all of this plays into the family of, to this relationship is the family of origin. And the reality is most people, when they choose somebody to um, establish a relationship with, will choose somebody similar to one of their parents, because that's what you know. That's what you've learned. That's what's comfortable. So it's breaking out of that comfort zone sometimes to do the right thing. That's the biggest problem because the alienators cannot let go of their of what of how they were raised because to do that means that they have to admit that they're not perfect. And to admit that they are not perfect means they are terrified that their family of origin is going to abandon them for not being perfect. They really believe that if they're here, you know and I'll just use this as an example. Let's say the family of origin insists on prim proper hair pulled back I mean, this per this alienator may truly believe that if they don't comply with that and that their hair is ever a mess, that their family will abandon them. Because as a child, they might have been punished one time because their hair wasn't pulled back exactly the right way or they didn't have the perfect clothing on or the right clothing on. So this is what they learned. So how do you fix that? You know, this is one of the problems. Our mental health system hasn't quite figured out how to help narcissists to recognize and accept that it's okay not to be perfect, that they, and to help them build their self-worth and self-esteem. Because unfortunately with a narcissist, if you build their self-worth and self-esteem without con- getting them to understand that they don't have to be perfect, they, this imp- emboldens them even more. They need to be able to accept that they're not perfect and that there are other people who can raise their children And that, you know, just because this is what happened to them as a child doesn't mean it's happening to their children. One of the reasons we see a lot of false allegations of abuse is because, like I said, the alienator was abused as a child. So they, and nobody saved them. And so they, like I said, they, they're completely engulfed their child and have such an enmeshed relationship that there's no borders and boundaries between their emotions, their feelings, their family of origin. And their new family they've just created. To them, it's all one. So they project their issues through the children as if those children are also being abused by the other parent in an attempt to save little them 
and to prove they're not the problem, it's the other person. Sad. And I, I, to be honest, it's an area that requires and needs a lot of research. I think that a lot of people don't, I think it's a very tough area to research because you really, your biggest problem is trying to, a narcissist will not go to therapy unless they're going there to prove they're perfect. So how are you going to get a narcissist to go to therapy to, and to commit to accepting that they don't have to be perfect, that they're not going to die if their hair isn't pulled back perfectly, that if their parents don't accept them because their hair isn't per- pulled back perfectly, it isn't, it isn't the end of the world. This is their parents' issue, not their issue. How are you going to get a narcissist to agree to go to therapy when it means having to admit they're not perfect? They can't do it. And they can't go to therapy because then their family says, well, see, you're not sound. You're not mentally stable. We were right about you. Well, now they've just been gaslit and abandoned. They cannot risk that. So that's why it's very hard for us to treat narcissists because we can't get them into ther- enough of them into therapy to figure out how to treat them. All right. We've been talking a lot about how we can help as individuals. Now, let's switch gears a bit. And I want to know how you think the governments, people in power and people who got elected into the office and those who are able to make systemic changes can help when it comes to parental alienation. Okay. You just hit the nail on the head what my organization's for. My dream is that someday, my job is obsolete because we have trained and educated enough people that they understand it, get it, and can assess for it, and I don't, and they don't need me anymore to do it. They should start with those um, one-pagers that we've been developing, the flyer that we did, um, start looking at the resources that are out there. Start, they need to take down their wall and say, hey, maybe, I, maybe there's something to this. Let me see what's there. Let me see the scientific evidence. Because the reality is parental alienation has a massive amount of scientific research studies and, and peer review articles and information, way more than there is proof that alienation doesn't. The key here is they need to start, they may have to start out small with those flyers and those, that, and those one pagers and then start to progress to some of these scientific articles and things that are being listed so that they can, they can they're backing up what they're reading. Um, and they need to talk to the parents or listen to the parents and the children who've been alienated. Because I think that in and of itself is enough to say, okay, we got a problem. What else you think the government as a whole should be doing? Accepting that parental alienation is a form of family domestic violence using coercive control and that it should not be allowed and that every single person who wants to work with family courts or within the family courts has extensive, intensive training in parental alienation and assessment tools and, the, and ways to, so they can assess and recognize true from false allegations of alienation and abuse. We really need to get the education and training out. We need legislation that puts that we need domestic violence legislation to include the psychological abuse that's used in parental alienation via coercive control. And it's got to be accepted so that we can get the training and education out there. We've got people out there in Maryland. There are some, what's her name? Uh, Representative Atterbury. Um, She's trying to push legislation 
that makes it illegal and a crime to accuse a parent of parental alienation or something along those lines. This is insane. We Even these parents that are screaming the parental alienation doesn't exist probably don't see their children and are therefore alienated. So how can they say it doesn't exist? It's, it's an oxymoron almost. I hope that these politicians and people in power are listening to your suggestions here. In fact, I implore anyone listening to this podcast to forward this to your local councilman or your mayor or the leader within your town to escalate this and ring the alarm on these situations so that they can make a proper bill or they can make proper laws to protect the children and the parents. With that said, where can people who are listening can find more information on everything you're doing and everything we're talking about? Okay, so there are tons of resources on my, pay, my site. And one of the best things I can tell them is, look, we are a nonprofit. We do not get grants and funding at this point. We rely on membership. It's dirt cheap. $25 once a year. That's like $2 a month. Okay. For them to have access to all the resources on my page and anybody who finds resources that aren't on our page, just send it to us. Let us know. We'll add it. We want this to be information that's out there. And they have to understand that that $25 helps me to pay for the domains, for the websites, for hosting the websites, everything we do, for the Zooms we do. So it's not a lot of money. And we can help hook you up with people in your chapter. Um, the laws may be in your chapter. You can join and become part of our legislative committee that's working with other committees. All of this, we need to come together. So while my, my nonprofit's out there, I will, you join me, I'm going to push you, and you're going to go, and these are the resources to all the other areas. Um, everybody's got their forte. I try to accumulate as much from everybody that I can, and I actually have a whole bunch out there that I do need to add and just have not gotten to yet. We're actually in the process of, of converting this data this into a proper formatted database like you would use if you're looking for a specialist in lungs in um in lungs or ENT or whatever. You know, you go out to your health insurance, you put in, you know, your state, your city, or and how many miles away from you and what area of specialty you need. Well, it's gonna be something like that. And if the person is looking for somebody in California who's an attorney that's near XYZ. They'll be able to put those parameters in and anybody in their parameters will hopefully come up. Uh, you know what I didn't do was give you the website and the name of the organization. My organization is called Pass Intervention or P as in Peter, A as in Apple, S as in Sam, Intervention. Our website is www.p as in Peter, A as in Apple, S as in Sam, hyphen, intervention.org or you can do .com and it'll take you there. When you go out to our site, and you become a member, you will then be able to have access to the, the other 75% of the site, which will include all these resources to all sorts of other groups, other professionals, experts, articles, evidentiary articles, uh, educational tools, videos, you name it. It's, most of this is locked down, and we lock it down for a reason. It's a way to, for us to protect our parents and our professionals, past, present, and future. I normally ask the experts on these shows if they have any last message to the parents who are suffering or the children who are going through alienation. But we have done that a lot throughout this episode so far. So let me ask you something that's slightly different. What's your message for those parents who are choosing to alienate their kids from their ex-spouse or partner? 
Oh, Lord, that's a good question. Because you can't tell them to stop, they won't stop. What they need to do is really look at their family of origin and look at the behaviors and the way their parents are and start to recognize if they are really very much like their parents and start to look at how it harmed them so they can understand how repeating that behavior is harming their children. Thank you, Joanne, for doing this episode with us. I appreciate it a lot. If you would like to know more about Joanne or find out more about parental alienation and domestic abuse, you guys can go to Joanne's website, which is included in the show notes, alongside all the resources, books, and other sites mentioned throughout this episode. I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge and show that you are not alone in this. With that said, if you need any specific legal advice, please get an independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. This podcast is not a legal or medical advice. If you are a minor or if you happen to have difficulties in understanding certain parts within this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable and ask them for clarifications. We have done our best to make sure that this episode doesn't offend anyone. And if you have further questions or comments regarding Find My Parent or this particular interview or this podcast, you can mail me at sk at findmyparent.org. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent or children and would like to find them again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of a smart algorithm and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent or children again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page in findmyparent.org and we hope to work together with you. That's it for this week and speak to you next week. Take care till then.